Good morning, Oak Ridge. For our summer series, we are doing a series of small books in the Bible entitled Bible Postcards. Last week, uh, Pastor Andrew was given 2 John to preach on, and he mentioned that that book was the second shortest book in the Bible based on word count. Well, today, I have 3 John, and it is the shortest book in the Bible. Now, I positively refuse to believe that this is because I tend to speak long sermons, and this was the best way of curbing my zeal. I got the smallest book, and that's okay. Uh, Just kidding. Then again, maybe I was given this little book because I myself was a missionary at one time, and I would consider that 3 John is a missionary letter. As many of you know, early in our career, Kathy Kathy and I spent some time in Zambia, Africa, way out in the bush. There was no phone connection with the outside world, let alone internet, with its almost immediate conversation across the world. Back then, it was snail mail. The time from writing the letter to its arrival in Canada was about a month, and the same from Canada to us. So the turnaround time for any communication was about two months. I suspect that with the personal carrier uh, idea that John had, people carrying the letters city to city, he did even better than we did. My, my, how times have changed. This epistle of 3 John gives us a wonderful glimpse of life in the early church near the end of the first century. It was written by the Apostle John, who calls himself the Elder, most likely from Ephesus, where he was living out his last days. As you might remember, he had been exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, but now he's back home in Ephesus. He is sending the letter to a friend and fellow believer by the name of Gaius, in an unknown church location, but probably in Asia Minor, perhaps one of the churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. The occasion for writing was to introduce some traveling brothers who were sent out for the purpose of evangelism and teaching. This was the practice of the early church. Just like Paul's missionary journeys, those who were with him were first trained and then sent out as missionaries. These brothers had been with John, no doubt. Who better to train them than the apostle himself? Then they were commissioned by the church to preach the gospel and to teach. Remember, there was no Bible at this time. Only individual books of the apostolic writing circulating in these early churches. Believers were therefore eager to hear more of God's word and to be fed in their souls. So there was a great need, and many hands were necessary to carry the word to the world of that time. Now this is a companion letter to Second Epistle of Peter, which Pastor Andrew so ably spoke on last week. In Second John, In 2 John, we read of false teachers seeking entrance to the homes and gatherings of the believers. So the directive is this. Do not take him into your home or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. 2 John 10 and 11. And so there, there was an opposition that was necessary because people were preaching false teaching. Here in 3 John, we find the opposite situation. These groups of traveling preachers and teachers were coming through to encourage and instruct the church and to evangelize. They needed places to stay since there were no holiday inns at that time. The Christians, specifically Gaius, are commended for extending hospitality to them. 
But there is one man who opposes all this evangelistic effort. His name is Diotrephes. And the apostle heavily criticizes him for refusing to extend this hospitality. So in 2 John, the apostle is saying, don't show hospitality to the bad guys. But in 3 John, he is saying, show hospitality to the good guys. In order to learn what is in this letter, let's look at the four characters mentioned in it. We will see that three of them were solidly committed to the mission enterprise to preach the gospel and bring others to Jesus. And one was not. They represent four groups of people. We will call them by these names. The professors, the providers, the prohibitors, and the preachers. In any, in any case, the work of the gospel today will still find these groups active. And then after looking at these groups, we will ask the question, which group am I in? First of all, let's look at the professor. Every gospel effort needs to be spearheaded and founded by some visionary and leader who first demonstrates how to do it and then teaches others who are his pupils. He becomes the professor and they become his students. The professor is introduced in verse 1, and he is called the elder. Although he does not identify himself by name, he certainly is the Apostle John. We can notice phrases like walking in the truth, found in verse 3 and 4, and, and anyone who does what is good is from God, in verse 11. These are favorite phrases of John found in his other epistles. Now the question is asked, why does he identify himself as the elder. Well, first, it was because John was an old man, perhaps 80 years old or more. This in itself is a wonder, because in that day, the average life expectancy was 45 or 50 years old. Just to live that long was a feat. But even more wonderful, he was still active in the work of the Lord, sending letters of introduction for Christians and planning to make missionary journeys to the churches. Now, second, he was an elder because he was part of the local church government. Now, some have doubted this elder was John because John was an apostle, a position above an elder. But the apostle Peter, in his book of 1 Peter, identifies himself as a fellow elder. So, why not John? He says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, this is Peter talking, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So, just like the other elders, John had the position of caring for the Christians in the work of the building of the local church. And no doubt he discipled many over the years of his life. In verse 4, he states that Gaius is one of his children, a child in the spiritual sense, because he probably brought Gaius to Christ. We do not know this for sure, but can surmise that John was one of the main teachers preparing these younger men to go out and be the foot soldiers of the gospel. We know this. John loved the gospel. He wrote a gospel. He was there when Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in his gospel, John recorded more gospel text verses than anyone else, including the apostle Paul himself. Remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have 
eternal life. John loved to reduce the gospel to its purest form, and John 3.16 is often called the gospel in a nutshell. In John 17, he quotes Jesus himself, stating these words of mission. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. John 17, 18 to 20. So in his ministry, John followed the pattern that Paul laid out in 2 Timothy. Because this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And as we have already said, who better to teach these young men than the master himself, the great apostle John? So John was the professor who taught his pupils the art of evangelism, how to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The next group is the provider. And we will see this in verse 2 to, to verse 8. The recipient of this letter was Gaius. He fulfilled a valuable role in this ministry effort because he was a provider. A successful mission needs providers. John had set out a group of men to evangelize the area, and they needed some practical help to accomplish their goals. A place to stay, a provision of food, and then some gifts of money to help them get to their next destination. And Gaius was the man. Notice how John greets him in verse 2. He says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along. Now taking from this verse, it is likely that Gaius had some medical problems and was not physically well. But he was well spiritually. Now some use this verse as a proof text for the health and wealth gospel. That God always wants you well and rich, and, and this is what they preach. And you know, that's not what the Bible has to say. Often God's people were suffering various diseases, and even the Apostle Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh that he carried through life. So this gospel of health and wealth is not being preached in this verse. That is not the gospel of Jesus, and that is not what is being said here. Gaius was well in soul, yet he was struggling in his body. But this did not stop Gaius from being involved in the gospel effort. Note what it says in verse 3. It says some previous missionaries who had already been helped by Gaius had reported back to John concerning Gaius' help to them. And it wasn't as if these were friends or relatives of Gaius. As it says in verse 4, they were, they were strangers to him, yet he welcomed them as brothers, as so that when they reported back to John, they, they attributed it to his love, his agape love, his love of God, and his love of the believers. No wonder John calls him faithful man in verse 5. And no doubt there was Mrs. Gaius as well, who contributed greatly, and, and no doubt a faithful woman of God as well. Can you imagine the pressure on her when her husband said to her, Honey, a new group of missionaries from John has just come to the door. I count five or six of them, and what can we feed these men tonight? And they will need beds and blankets, etc. 
But I imagine Mrs. Gaius was up to the task because she shared the missionary zeal with her husband. She had done it before and was willing, always willing, even though it took great effort to make everything ready. An example of this was the company of women who followed Jesus and his 12 disciples and saw to their needs. In Galilee, it says these women had followed him and cared for his needs. It says that in Mark. When Kathy and I were missionaries back in the distant past, we experienced the blessing of providers. Whenever we would travel in Africa, in Europe, Canada, the States, there were many, many homes that took us in. As the word says, they will be blessed. Matthew 10, 41 says this, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Prophet, uh, verse 6 of our text says, he not only provided for their immediate needs, but he saw to it that they had some cash in their pockets to take with them to the next city. Now the Apostle Paul was often lacking providers, so he had to work as a tent maker to su supplement his income. But there was one church that he salutes as faithful providers. It was the church at Philippi. And in the words of Paul, Philippians 4, 15 and 16, he says this, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was, was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. When Kathy and I first went out as missionaries, the first months were a test of faith because there was very little financial support at the outset. That first month, some dear brother sent us $200, and that was a good gift, but that was all we got that month. But as time went on, the support increased, and our needs were fully supplied. Unlike the Apostle Paul, we didn't have to make any tents to get by. We were blessed by our providers, some of whom are still at Oak Ridge today. Again, Kathy and I say to you, thank you. Missionaries need providers. Next, we're going to talk about the negative person in this text, and he's the prohibitor, and his name is Diotrephes. We find him in verse 9 to verse 11. Successful missions don't need prohibitors, but if God's people are going to do a work for God, the prohibitors will certainly be there. Satan loves to oppose the gospel wherever it is advancing. The Apostle Paul said these words, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. We know that the world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and will oppose it by the help of Satan. However, in our passage, unfortunately, it is not opposition from outside the church, but rather from inside and in the very leadership of the church. He was likely an elder. Now, first we get an insight into the character of Diotrephes as we read in verse 9. It says, Diotrephes, who loves to be first. I don't know much Greek, but I'm told that this expression of being first is only found in one other place in the Bible, in the original Greek, and it is used of Christ himself. It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, so that every, in everything he might have the supremacy, so that in everything he might be first. Now, Christ is the Lord of the church, its head, 
And he deserves to be forever first and have the highest place. But here was a man in the church exalting himself above all the others as if he was the Lord. Now what was in this man's heart? A sinfully jealous determination to be first to the point of suppressing all other challenges to his leadership. So when the Apostle Paul sends a letter to inform him of the coming of these men, he disregards the letter completely, as we read in verse 9. Evidently, the Apostle's words were a threat to his autocratic rule. Then he had the arrogance to undermine the authority of the Apostle, the apostle by gossiping malicious, maliciously about him. Now, when the team finally arrives, he not only refuses to welcome the brothers, but he endeavors to stop others from welcoming them and threatens to put them out of the church. Somehow, he sees these young men as a threat to his dictatorial rule over the church, and he stands against them. What is he standing against? He stands against God's apostle, and then he stands against God's work all for the sake of personal pride and selfish control. It is here that John reminds them of his teaching from 1 John. We are to assess ourselves and others by the fruit that comes out of our life and the life of others. A consistent pattern of evil is not to be imitated. Instead, we are to conclude that that person is an imposter and has not seen God. There is such a thing as wickedness in high places. Such gross misconduct requires swift and decisive action. The aged apostle was prepared to take the journey to that assembly to confront the man directly, as we read in verse 10. Next, we get to the preachers. And we've seen them mentioned previously in other verses, like verse 3, 5, 7, and 10. But when we get to, to verse 12, we are, we are told about a certain man by the name of Demetrius, and he represents the preachers. Most likely, he was the one who bore the letter from John and was perhaps the head of the group. These men who were willing to sacrifice all for the sake of the name loved Jesus and the gospel of Christ, and they were saying so by their devotion to serve him. They had learned their missionary skills from the aged apostle, and now they were going out in faith to serve the Lord. There's a curious phrase in this verse. It says, they accepted no help from the pagans. Why? I think it was because they did not want to confuse the gospel of salvation, full and free as it is, with the pagan religion of giving offerings to the gods in order to receive a blessing from the gods. At the entrance of the Agora, or the marketplace in ancient Ephesus, there was an offering bowl that all who entered were expected to contribute to. It was for the temple gods. If you did not contribute, you could not expect to trade there, either to buy or to sell. And the message? You must buy favor from the gods. How different is the gospel of Christ? Salvation is not to be purchased. It is a free gift for all who will believe and receive. Now, in verse 12, we see the character of one of these men, a man by the name of Demetrius, who was most likely the leader of the brothers. What a resume he has. What a glowing recommendation he receives. He is well spoken of, first, by everyone. 
he had shown the grace of Christ to many people. It also says he was well spoken of by the truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, it is true that Demetrius was there to speak well of the truth. But here, it is the truth speaking well of him. It means this. His character is affirmed in the word of God, not just by man's standards, but by the standards of God himself. The word was commending the character of Demetrius. How beautiful is that? See, more important than what man thinks of you is what God thinks of you. And God was so pleased with Demetrius. Now, lastly, the apostle adds his own commendation, assuring Gaius that this man had been observed by the apostle himself and found completely approved. The message is this. The Ephesian church was not sending their second best people to missions. They were sending Demetrius. They were sending their best to represent the name of the Lord. So these are the preachers. Now we must ask ourselves the question, how do I fit into the God's program of spreading the gospel? Well, we've looked at four different groups. And perhaps you can identify yourself as falling into one of these groups. And perhaps you are a professor, just like the Apostle John. And there are some professors among us at Oak Ridge. Recently, I read our brother Gordon Rumford's newsletter. For a number of years, Gordon has been discipling a group of men in the Word to prepare them for serving the church. Even though he is now chronically ill and restricted from doing a lot of his own preaching, he still continues to work with these men, discipling them. Brian Syme teaches churches with new Canadians how to be mission-minded. John Campbell sits on the board of mission organizations, and he and Wilma have led many missions themselves. Also, some of our faithful Sunday school teachers are professors. They have for many years been teaching the younger Christians how to evangelize children. When Pastor Chris was with us in the past, he began to disciple some of the younger men of the church. And this worthy task is now being carried on by Pastor Josiah and Pastor Andrew. When I traveled to Kazakhstan with Lou Warad a number of years ago, I, I saw firsthand some of the fruit of Lou's discipling work. Young Kazakhs who had been trained by Lou and others and were able to carry on the work there. And there are many others who I've perhaps omitted to mention. We have good professors among us. But I want to broaden this idea of the professors to include all of the parents of younger children. Parents are to teach their children to know and obey God's word, but they are also meant to teach their children to carry that testimony to their friends at school, in the neighborhood, and even online. Children need to hear of Jesus from other children. Teens need to hear the gospel from other teens. Now, some of you will say, but my children may be unpopular if they do that, or they may be bullied. Sadly, that may be true. But the alternative is that Without the gospel being spoken by children to children and by teens to teens, this generation will grow up not knowing Jesus and at a time when they are most open 
to believe because I have heard that over 80% of people who do become Christians become Christians before the age of 15. So, dear mom, dear dad, be a professor of the gospel and teach your children to speak their faith to their friends. And perhaps you are a provider. Not all of us are called to be preachers and missionaries and teachers of missions, but all of us can be like Gaius and support the workers. When our missionaries, Paul and Penny, can come back from Quebec, there are various people who accommodate them. There's Doug and Aletha, and there's Greg and Penny, and, and Bob made provision for them to stay a month in a, in a beautiful uh, apartment recently. These people, because they have entertained the prophets, will receive a prophet's reward. I know that Oak Ridge has made a rule that 20% of our giving goes to missions, and I believe that God has blessed us for that commitment over the years. Lord willing, we'll be able to do more in the future. And short-term mission teams have gone out with the help of missionaries uh, in, in other countries to do their work. At home, we have had missionary endeavors like Vacation Bible School and Boys Club, and, and uh, we've gone to Post Inn and other places. And we have lovingly placed the seed of the gospel truth into hundreds of minds. Many have helped children in youth camps and Bible camps in the summer. But you know, more needs to be done. We need to be praying about these things. We need to ask, how can we do more for Jesus? Unfortunately, there will always be people like Diotrephes opposing the gospel from without. We need to be thankful for our country, which still allows us the freedom to declare the gospel. Lord, help us when our country becomes like Diotrephes and forbids the preaching of God's word. And this may all change as the moral climate of our land is becoming worse and the world around us is more and more opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But just as our Diotrephes in the text was the enemy from within, we need to be careful for any spirit of rebellion among us which does not prioritize the gospel and the preaching of it. I'm thankful for Oak Ridge's heart for the gospel over the years. I'm very thankful for Pastor Josiah and Pastor Andrew who both love the gospel and preach it so well. Our elders are united in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are strident voices in other churches which would seek to downplay the work of the gospel. Recently, I was appalled that one TV evangelist who purports to be a Christian wrote a book recently that described how much Jesus can improve your life to make you healthy and wealthy so that you can be your, the best version of yourself. But there was not one mention of the cross in the whole book. Our gospel is this. Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2 and 2. And we will never delete the cross to make the message somehow more acceptable to a sin-darkened world. Now lastly, our fourth group is the preacher. And you may be a preacher. The most wonderful fruit of a church is to pr produce men and women who not only live Christian lives, but enjoy bringing it to others, the message of Jesus to others. These are the preachers. 
And the Bible says this regarding, regarding the preachers. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Proverbs 11 and verse 30. And Paul, the preacher, said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9 and 16. The accumulation of this world's wealth and applause is not the goal of the Christian life. It is service for Christ and witness for him. It takes time and effort and courage to witness. In this regard, I remember my sister, while her brothers were fighting and playing football, my sister was out there talking of Jesus to some of her friends, and various of them became Christians as a result of her testimony. May we all seek to share our faith with others so that the gospel goes out brightly from our assembly. And we long to see the day when more of us will take up this task full time and give their whole hearts to it. And remember, we need to send our best. Pastor Josiah is here with us because some other church sent out their best to us. And Pastor Andrew is here with us because some other church surrendered their best to us. May Oak Ridge be able to bless other churches and the world in such a way also. Professors, yes. Providers, yes. Preachers, yes. But may there never be a prohibitor among us. May God bless you. Amen. Amen.